Good morning. It is a joy to be with you all this morning and worship, and what a privilege it is to gather as one body. It's a, a blood-bought privilege, we can say. Jesus spilt his blood so that we might gather as one people and worship our one God. Last Sunday, I was worshiping back with my home church in Wisconsin, and I was thinking uh, before the sermon began, what is it that I love so much about Fort William? And the verse that came to mind is from Psalm 119. And the psalmist says, My soul is consumed with longings for your rules at all times. I was thinking to myself, this is a verse that describes the people at Fort William, the people that love the Word of God. And so that verse made me thankful for you all, and my heart was warmed by that. So in light of that, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 this morning. And I would encourage you to open a Bible up, and you can find Mark chapter 5 on page 840 in your pew Bibles. So Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of our God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Diaconus how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. 
Oh, Father, we do rejoice in your word, and we say we, we long for your rules at all times. We live by your word. We are sustained by your word. Day by day, we need your word. And so we rejoice that you are a generous God and you freely give us your word. Oh, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We praise you for the Savior that he is, how he subjects demons and unclean spirits to himself, how he rules over nature, how he rules over death and sin, how he redeems people from the great deep and dark valley. And so, Father, we ask this morning as we look into Mark chapter 5, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might see the glory of Jesus, that we might see and that we might marvel and that we might worship. And, Father, we ask this morning that the story of the Scriptures, this great story spanning from Genesis to Revelation, would begin to reframe our minds and our thinkings. It might reframe our, our thoughts, that we might live in accordance with your will in this present age. So, Father, we need your help this morning. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. So I want to set up our text this morning in Mark chapter 5, the story of the demoniac, by telling a story. And the scriptures contain a vast story, and it's a story we can say that it's about God and his, his people. And within this vast story, the scriptures are not shy to speak about the condition of God's people in this vast story, moving from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And as we read through the many books that make up this story, we move from, from soaring heights down to depressing depths as we learn about the people in this story. One of the highest mountain peaks within this story of God and his people is found in Psalm chapter 8. While Psalm 8 is firmly planted in the middle of the Bible, quite literally, it speaks of the intended design and goal of humanity in creation. According to the psalmist, mankind, this creature made on the sixth day of creation, receives the special focus and attention of the creator God. Psalm 8 tells us, while God is truly the maker of all things, his eye is especially upon one creature, mankind. Verse 4 sings of God's care. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Even more as we continue to read in Psalm 8, God has conferred upon man, upon mankind, privilege and blessing unparalleled in all of creation. It was not to the beasts of the field or the fish in the sea or the birds in the air that this is said of. You, may, you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And what the psalmist is saying is that man has been made from the dust, but God has not treated this creature like dust. And God has lavishly poured out gifts upon mankind. He has placed a, a crown upon our heads, a rich robe upon our backs, and he's put a, a signet ring upon our finger. 
And it is to this creature that he has made that must eat and drink and sleep, this entirely dependent and feeble and frail creature that the Lord has entrusted his vast and beautiful creation to. The psalmist celebrates the greatest endowment in all of human history. In verses 6 through 8, the psalmist sings, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. What the psalmist is saying is, look here or there, look wherever. God has made it all and he has given it all to mankind to have dominion over But the scriptures don't let us stay on top of the mountain for very long. Due to sin, we are thrust down from the soaring peaks to the valley below. The glorious realities of Psalm 8 are shattered and broken by man's rebellion against his creator. And the scriptures are not shy about describing the conditions of mankind for better, as we see in Psalm 8, or for worse. So sin has reverse this idyllic portrait of Psalm 8. This creature that has received God's special care and attention. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him now receives this word from Genesis chapter 6. The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This creature gifted with glory and honor who's been given a crown upon his head and a a rich robe upon his back and a signet ring upon his finger is now, according to Revelation 3.15, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And this creature who has been given dominion over all creation has now become what? Has now become the very slave of that creation. Paul reasons in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in this great story that the scriptures tell, we move from the the mountaintops of glory and honor to a deep and dark, depressing valley consisting of folly, sin, and shame. But this is not the end of the story of God and people. The God of the Scriptures is not only the creator of mankind, but he is also revealed in the book of Isaiah with a new name, a distinct name. We hear this from the mouth of the Lord, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. And he is revealed in the book of Isaiah as this, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And from this deep and dark valley full of folly, sin, and slavery, Isaiah the prophet begins to speak of what this Savior God, this Redeemer God, will do for his people one day. Isaiah preaches to a people who are living in the valley, and he says this valley will not last forever. But a day will come when the Lord will tend his flock like a shepherd. A day will come when the Lord will draw near and he will give sight to the blind. A day will come when the Lord will will free prisoners from their shackles and their chains. A day will come when the Lord will forgive sins and swallow up death forever. A day will come when the Lord will destroy this valley once and for all. And when we turn to Mark's gospel, what we're working through, Mark's gospel speaks directly into this great story about God and people. 
Mark announces boldly and loudly that this Savior God, this Redeemer God of Israel has indeed come and drawn near to his people. And Mark unveils the unique identity of this Savior. He begins his gospel, the very first verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, by identifying this God. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then throughout the gospel of Mark, we hear this joyous message sounding forth from the lips of Jesus. Jesus announces, God has returned in him to give grace and mercy to a people of the valley. And throughout the pages of Mark, we then see the tangible effects of this great rescue mission. Jesus' ministry in the gospel of Mark is radically oriented towards people. He calls men into his service. Follow me. He gathers men around him. Why? So that they might be with him. He commissions men into his great rescue plan, his great rescue mission. I will make you into fishers of men. And then Jesus spends his time preaching the great rescue plan of God to the crowds. He, he preaches, the kingdom of God is as if. And Jesus even enacts the great rescue plan in his own life and ministry. He frees people from the clutches of demonic oppression. He heals broken and tattered body. He even forgives sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. And so far we can make out a distinct shape to this story between God and his people. The story begins in Psalm 8 on, a top, on top of a mountain. There is glory and honor that God has given to man. But because of sin, man is thrust down from the mountaintop into the valley below. And it is a dark valley, a shameful valley. But it is in this valley we begin to hear the promises of the Savior God. God will return to his people and draw them out of this valley. And then we come to the Gospel of Mark, and Mark tells us this day has arrived in Jesus. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. But we have to stop here, and we have to begin to reason and, and question. The story that the Scriptures tell is indeed a grand story. But as we have told it so far, it is an incomplete story. We have not yet heard the conclusion of the story, the ending of the story. And so we can question here and we can ask this, this question in several different ways so it will settle in upon us. And so we can ask this question theologically. What does the gospel of the kingdom achieve among and in God's people? Or we can ask this question in terms of, of geography. In this great story, we've moved from the, the mountaintop to the valley. And so the question is, where do we go from the valley in terms of geography? We can ask this question personally. What does God want me, and more importantly, what does God want his entire church to look like and become in the gospel of grace? So I'm just going to lay my cards out here and give you a provisional answer. So we can say this about the gospel. Here's the answer. God, through his spirit-filled son, is in the business of making his people truly human. 
Where are we going? What is God achieving? What is God working for in the gospel of grace? Well, he is doing this. He is creating a new and redeemed humanity to live upon this earth in this age and also in the age to come. God is making sinful people truly human again. And so while in the Gospel of Mark we have looked at many healing and exorcism accounts, we've looked at the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, we've looked at the paralytic, the man in the synagogue, and others. And the story that we read this morning in Mark chapter 5 stands out. In the other stories, Mark has just quickly told us these healing stories. We hear them and we move past them quickly. But here in chapter 5, Mark has devoted 20 verses to this healing story of this man with these demons. And it is as if Mark has hit the slow motion button. He has, he has slowed down this story and he's, he's drawing us near. And he wants us to take a long and extended look at this man on the other side of the sea and then carefully notice what Jesus has accomplished and brought about in this man's life. And so the plan for this morning is to work through three distinct phases found in this text. And our aim is to answer our question, where do we go from the valley? And our aim is to fill out this provisional answer that I gave you. God is in the business of making people truly human. And so the three distinct phases are these. They're pretty simple. The sinner, the savior, the saved. So we can start with looking at the sinner who is in the dark and depressing valley. So we leave chapter 4, we enter into chapter 5, and, and Mark moves us from one violent scene to another. We leave the great waves of the sea and the blowing winds of the storm to find a man who is equally violent and chaotic. And we have to be clear, this meeting between Jesus and this man is no accident either. There is intention here. Verse 6 reveals that this man was watching Jesus from afar so that according to verse 2, that when Jesus stepped out of the boat, the man would be there immediately to meet him. And so in verses 2 through 5, Mark gives us a point-by-point description of this man that Jesus meets on the other side of the sea. And we'll just work through this description clause by clause. And so Mark begins writing, he says, A man with an unclean spirit. According to to Mark, this man that meets Jesus was no longer under his own control, but he was now held in possession under the influence of a, a foreign evil agent. And Mark continues, he says, he lived among the tombs. And under the influence of this unclean spirit, this man no longer enjoyed the fellowship of his family or his friends or his neighbors but now only found fellowship with who? With the dead. So much so that he made his home among the tombs. This is where he fit in. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. What Mark is saying is there's no therapy that could fix this man. No bonds, no chains could hold him down. No strong man could come and restrain him. He was like Samson, melting cords like flax, bursting the bonds apart. 
And night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man who's under the control of demons was driven to utter misery. Howling like a wild animal, subjecting his own body to self-destruction, spilling his own blood. And as we remember the beauty of that mountain peak of Psalm 8, we have to connect this story with Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. When we remember Psalm 8, we can just start to grasp the great tragedy depicted in Mark chapter 5. Glory and honor have been substituted for a dwelling place among the dead. The golden crown, the royal robe, the the signet ring placed upon the finger has been replaced with the behavior of a, a lunatic. Royal dominion over all creation has been substituted for enslavement to demons. And here we have to see, we have to reckon with the utter tragedy of sin. What has sin done to this man? Well, it has dehumanized this man, according to Psalm 8, when we put these texts together and when we compare them. We can ask, why has Mark brought out this man before us and given us such a a thorough description of him? Is this man we meet in Mark chapter 5 just another roadside accident? As we travel down the highway of life, we see the fire blazing, glass broken, metal mangled, and we, we look with our mouths hanging open and we're pointing and we're wondering, what in the world happened to that guy? Well, Mark has not given us the story so that we can gawk at him, but so that we might understand our own story. Mark does not write to tell us that there's some really bad people out here. Look at this guy in Mark chapter 5. But so that we might know we fit into this story of bad people. Calvin is really helpful here in his commentaries. He, He helps us appropriate this passage to ourselves. And he says this. We must now add the symbolic meaning. Though we are not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked and torn and disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to the soundness of mind. And when we read the story of this man in Mark chapter 5, it is the narrative of every human being who has lived after the creation and fall of Adam. And the Apostle Paul helps us apply this story to ourselves. He writes his own graphic description of, the, of man in sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, he writes this. And notice the parallel language, how close Paul's language mirrors the language of Mark chapter 5. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These passages are eerily similar. What Paul is telling us is we are dwellers of the valley. 
Like the man we meet in chapter 5, in sin we are a people terrorized and held captive by the reign of Satan. Like the man we meet in chapter 5, we are a people who are are dead in sin, living among the tombs. Like the man in chapter 5, we are a people who are hostile towards God and aggravated towards our neighbors. And like the man in chapter 5, we are our own greatest enemies, spilling our own blood. And like the man in chapter 5, in sin, we have become dehumanized. Psalm 8 stands far from us in our sin. But there is indeed hope in this story, and the hope is the Savior. What a glorious reality. Jesus meets this man of the tombs. Jesus crosses across the sea to meet this man among the tombs. And Mark stresses to us the might of this demon-possessed man. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. No one had the strength to subdue him. And even more, when we go down to verse 9, we realize that this event between Jesus and the demon-possessed man is unlike the other exorcisms that Jesus has performed. There's not simply just one unclean spirit in this man, but there is a legion. The unclean spirit identifies himself saying, my name is legion for we are many. Jesus is meeting a, a military regiment of demons numbering in the thousands. But we have come to know something about this Jesus who steps out of the boat on the other side of the lake. We have heard the prophetic preaching of John the Baptist. John tells us about who Jesus is. He says, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And as we have carefully read and worked through the gospel of Mark, we have beheld the mighty works and the authority of this Jesus How Jesus stood tall in the wilderness as he was tempted by Satan. How he rebuked demons and unclean spirits with authority. And so this military regiment of Satan advances towards Jesus. But when the Lord Jesus Christ steps on shore, there is no contest between these two warring factions. There is no question how this battle will go. The man that no one could bind, the man who broke chains and shackles, the man that no one had the strength to subdue, a man infested and controlled by thousands of unclean spirits, finds only defeat in the presence of the Son of God. And all that this man and these spirits can do is grovel at the feet of Jesus. All that can be done is for these unclean spirits is to lay themselves down in the dirt prostrate before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All that can be done now is a work of pleading. Verses 6 and 8. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment All that can be done is pleading. And here the dominance of the Lord Jesus Christ is put on full display. By the word of Jesus and the word of Jesus alone, the unclean spirits are cast out of this man. And notice carefully the language that Mark uses to describe this scene. Legion must ask permission. Legion can only go where Jesus permits. Legion is bound. 
Legion is bound by the word of Jesus and the word of Jesus alone. Verses 12 and 13. They begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And in verse 13, we hear of this, this strange scene. Mark records, And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And I was reading this week, studying. There's a lot of ink spilt in commentaries over what in the world is going on here. Why would you waste all of this good bacon? Why would Jesus cause the loss of so many pigs? Pig herders were depending upon these pigs for their livestock. But the point is really simple. The dead pigs in the sea, the 2,000-some corpses of dead swine provide a tangible reality for all to see that Jesus Christ is indeed the great victor over legion and Satan's forces. That's what they prove. What a glorious picture of the gospel we see in this text. The Lord Jesus Christ has entered into the deepest and darkest part of the valley. He's entered into the most vile of situations. He's encountered the greatest bondage and power, and he has conquered. This is the gospel, the story of the victorious Jesus over every force. And the scriptures lead us in hope this morning. The valley is no match for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we survey the whole of the New Testament, we hear this great victory chant. Paul rejoices in the gospel in Colossians chapter 2, and he rejoices in this great victory. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. John shouts to us the news in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The book of Revelation celebrates the present work of Jesus, the present accomplishments of Christ's death and resurrection in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. John celebrates, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And the book of Hebrews declares, that Jesus has destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so believers this morning, behold the groveling legion of spirits. Behold the strongest forces that Satan could muster up. Thousands of spirits face down in the dirt before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Son of God. Behold the dead pigs floating in the sea, 2,000 corpses. Let these signs build up your faith. Christ is indeed the great victor over all. In Mark words to encourage our hearts today. And we can reason boldly and confidently. Just as Jesus crossed over to the other side of the sea, just as Jesus was able to defeat a legion of unclean spirits with his word, Just as those swine were were dead floating in the sea, how much more is this Jesus able to deliver us safely from every evil? From every evil and deliver us safely into his glorious kingdom. And Mark is preaching to us this morning. He's telling us Jesus is the sufficient and mighty Savior to rescue a people from the valley. 
a people like you and me. And he writes so that we might see and behold this glorious Jesus. So we're moving along in our outline this morning. Sinner, Savior, now saved. And we can return to our initial questions, and this is where we really dig into them. Where do we go from here? Mountaintop, valley below, Jesus... Where do we go from the valley? What is God doing in this gospel of grace? Where is he bringing us to? Mark teaches us this morning that through this story, our understanding of the gospel must be guided by two prepositions. Mark teaches us in Christ we have been saved from something. What have we been saved from in the gospel? Well, we've been saved from death. We've been saved from sin. We've been saved from hell. We've been saved from Satan. But there's a second preposition that is equally important for us. We have been saved to something, or better yet, we've been saved to become someone. So what have we been saved to? Mark has made clear that this man in chapter 5 has been saved from something. With copious precision, Mark has told us about this man's behavior before he met Jesus and what he was like, his dwelling place among the tombs, his, his lunacy, his misery, his self-harm, his hollering, his, his tormentors. Now in verses 14 through 20, Mark, with the same copious precision, unveils what this man has been saved to after meeting Jesus. And we can work through this to-ness of the gospel clause by Clause in verses 14 through 20. In verse 15, we hear this description. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there. No longer was this man running to and fro among the tombs. No longer was this man under the power of legion. But Mark gives us this beautiful picture. This man is now sitting, subjected to Jesus. He has taken up the posture of a disciple, a posture of a learner, sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in all the words of Jesus, beholding his Savior. And Mark continues, sitting there clothed. No longer is this man yelling and hollering night and day. No longer is this man naked, running around among the tombs. No longer does this man stand as an outcast from society. But now because of Jesus, he wears clothing proper of a man. And Mark then adds, in his right mind. Sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. No longer do wild and and vain imaginations capture this man's heart, but he has returned to sanity. He can perceive reality appropriately. But we have to be clear this morning that the salvation did not only affect the outward deportment of this man, but the salvation even transformed the inner workings of this man's heart. We go down to verse 18, and Mark describes what's going on inside of this man, the new longings created because of this salvation. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with Jesus. This man has been healed. He's been under the tyranny of Satan. And where does he want to go? Does he want to go home? Does he want to see his family? Does he want to see his friends? No. What does he want the most? He wants to be with his glorious Savior. He begged Jesus that he might be with him. 
And even more, this man who is a tool of Satan has now a new vocation in the gospel of grace. Jesus gives this man something to do with his life. And in verse 19, Jesus tells us of this new vocation for this man. Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This man now by grace is to be a living testament to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And what we begin to see in the healing of this demon-possessed man is the restoration of Psalm 8. While sin ravaged mankind, stripping us of our clothes, our dignity, our calling, Christ Jesus has come on this great rescue mission plan and in his great mercy and salvation has intervened in this story. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus comes to this man and he puts a crown back upon his head. Jesus comes to this man and he draws near to him and he wraps him up in royal garments. He places the robe upon this man's shoulders. Jesus draws near to this man and he places again the signet ring upon his finger. And brothers and sisters, the gospel proclaims to us not just that we've been saved from something, but that we've been saved to something. The Son of God became flesh in order to sanctify flesh. The Son of God took a body to himself so that we might gain true bodies. The Son of God became a human so that we might truly become human once again, formed and fashioned in his image. Or as the Apostle Paul preaches in Ephesians chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were living among the tombs, following the prince of the power of the air, he did what? He made us alive together with Christ. What we see in Mark chapter 5 is the beginning of true humanity. Jesus saved this man so that he would sit so that he would be clothed, that he would be in his right mind. And what happened to this man is what Jesus is doing presently to all who call upon his name. He is making a people truly human, a people who can sit, a people who are truly clothed, a people who are truly in their right minds. And so we can ask, where do we go from the valley? What is Mark teaching us? Well, he says this, Jesus He goes down into the valley, that depressing valley, and he grabs hold of us. And he throws us on our shoulders. And what does he do? He starts marching us up back to the top of the mountain. He works to make us truly human once again. So brothers and sisters, where where do we go from here? What does it mean to live a life of faith and repentance day by day? Well, it means this for you today. We must live out who we have become in Christ Jesus. In other words, we must learn how to wear this crown of gold that Christ has placed upon our heads. We have to reckon that to ourselves. In Christ Jesus, we have a crown of gold upon our heads. What does it mean to live like that? We must figure out how to walk around with a royal robe upon our back. Christ in his great mercy has drawn near to us and he's placed this this rich robe upon our shoulders. What does it look like to live with that robe upon your back? 
We must understand the privilege of having the signet ring of the great king placed upon our fingers. What does it look like to live with this this finger, this ring on our fingers? We must not learn only to sing Psalm 8, but to live out Psalm 8. The gospel proclaims to us Psalm 8 is once again true of a people. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So the gospel proclaims and it commands that by God's grace, we ought to live as God's redeemed humanity. We ought to live out Psalm 8 because of Jesus Christ. And we ought to tell how much the Lord has done for us and how he has mercy on us, how he gathered us up from the valley, how he has thrown us upon his shoulders, how he has clothed us with this rich robe and he's put this golden crown upon our heads and this signet ring upon our fingers. We ought to tell how much Jesus has done for us. He has made us truly human once again. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in the gospel of grace. We rejoice that we've been saved from something. And oh, we, have, we need to be saved from something. Sin and death and hell, ourselves, Satan. We praise you that you saved us to something. That by your grace you are fashioning us to look like your son. That by your grace you are fashioning us to look again like the man of Psalm chapter 8. And we ask for your grace today that we might live out of this story. That we might live as a people who have crowns upon our heads and robes upon our backs and signet rings upon our fingers. Oh Father, would you give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.